Hi, everyone. I'm Ashley Minogue from OpenView's expansion team, where I help software startups accelerate their revenue growth to build long-lasting companies. This season on Build, we're talking about product-led growth. Each week, I'll speak with tech executives and founders to hear firsthand how they've leveraged a product-led growth model to put product at the center of their acquisition, conversion, and expansion strategies. Now on with the show. Today's episode is all about user activation. We'll discuss why so many businesses fail to focus on this critical step in the user journey and how you can avoid falling into that trap. I'm joined by Sean Klaus, VP of product at Metromile and former head of growth at Atlassian. Welcome, Sean. Thanks for joining me. Morning, Ashley. Excited to be here. Likewise. So can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Sure. As you just mentioned, I'm Sean Klaus. I'm currently Chief Product Officer at Metromile. We make paper mile car insurance powered by technology. More recently than that, I was at Atlassian for about six years where I built a growth function from zero. So you built growth from zero at Atlassian. Take us back to that time. What was the impetus behind starting a growth function? So that was roughly six years ago now that we that we began that journey. And it was kind of a bit of a weird start. Effectively, you know, at that time, growth was starting to become a thing here in the Valley. Mike Cannon-Brooks, one of the two CEOs, was like, well, I wonder if this growth thing that those guys are doing can have any use in the B2B context because pretty much everybody was doing it in the B2C context. And so effectively what he did was he went, we should give this a go. And he tapped me on the shoulder and said, I want you to bring together this ragtag team. There were six of us at the start. And then see if you can make this thing valuable for Atlassian. And basically he gave us six months to live and said, six months from now, we're going to look back and we'll see whether or not this thing has an ROI. And if it does, we'll continue. And obviously, you know, considering we survived for five years and we built out a massive function, uh, obviously it was pretty successful. Definitely. So you had a team of six. What was your original mandate? Like, what were the problems you were initially trying to solve? When we first started, we basically took the pirate metrics, well-known pirate metrics funnel, and we kind of looked at that and we went pretty wide, actually. We kind of played a lot in all sorts of different parts of the product, attempting to pretty much just find any way of making money and, and proving the value of growth. But over time, we evolved quite a lot, the way we were thinking, as we gained more data about how users behaved. And I think our key learning pretty early on was that we could show that we had this really complex, all of Atlassian's pieces of software are pretty complex. And with Jira, we could show that even though Jira is this complex thing, and at that time, the evaluation period was 30 days, we could show that the vast majority of users made their decision within 30 minutes. So you had 30 days to evaluate it, but if you were not going to convert, you typically spent less than 30 minutes in the software. And so we realized that the time to prove value is actually way shorter than you might think it is. So we started focusing pretty heavily in the activation area. Definitely. And I think that's a common theme that many startups will see is those first few interactions that your lead or your customer has with your product is is definitely pivotal. So how did you first think about getting in and, and optimizing activation, given that you knew that those first 30 minutes were so important? The main thing we realized was that we had to have some way of understanding how we were going to work in activation and, and what activation even meant. And we tried a bunch of different ways to understand was activation to do with certain key behaviors that, the, that were conducted in the software or was activation measured by survival. And in the end, actually, we ended up basically activation turned out for us to be pretty much a zero and one problem. Like the hardest problem at all in activation is to keep a user 
very long at all, right? You have to show them value very quickly. And so we ended up measuring that with a framework we call D1 to 7, which is a little bit confusing, but effectively, if you were a daily active user on day one to seven, as in not day zero, which was your first day. So if you were active on any day in the first week, other than your first day, then that was considered like, it, it, that was a very pivotal moment for us. That was effectively the whether or not we had shown you enough value on the first day in order to make you want to return. And then after that, we measured out to people who returned in the second week. So that was second week wow, which was the second key lever for value and key metric that we were attempting to drive. And we were basically just focusing in on that. And we were trying to work out, well, how do we deliver value to people very, very quickly to get them to their aha moment so they can see the value. Then we have to get them to form a habit uh, with the software, so re re repeatedly return. And then after that, once we've got a, a happy user with a habit of using our software, we need to make them more engaged to find ways of deepening our connection with that user. Got it. And so it sounds like you were really focused on user activation and making sure there was increased traction with the product week over week. Were you thinking about overarching company activation as well? Or how are you balancing individual users versus the broader account? Yeah, that's an interesting topic because in B2C, obviously, you don't have that problem. Effectively, you're just activating individuals. And obviously, with collaboration software, which is pretty much every, every tool that Alassian makes, then we did have to think about the account or the company or the, or we thought about it as the team or the instance level. And it's important that you think about that because realistically, the first user doesn't behave like the others is the first key inside. It's that the very first user is typically the hardest to get over the line. Like you have to, they have to set up the software. They have to get it into a position that other people could see value in it. And then all these other people have to arrive and they themselves have to gain value. So the activation flow for the first person is typically different to the others. And secondly, if you don't activate the first user, then there will not be any further users in the account. Pretty much the, the account will be dead. But if you do activate the first user, you still need those second users to activate and preferably become engaged as well. And so one way we looked at this, and just to d deepen the, the conversation a bit on the engagement that I mentioned earlier, one way we looked at this was that we had a concept of a high-value monthly active user. And a high-value monthly active user is a user who uses the software, for Jira at least, it's a user who uses the software for five days out of 28. So you can think about that as a little bit over once a week on average. What was really cool about this particular definition was that those types of users have shown enough value that, that they repeatedly return. And they also turn out pretty much never to churn. So they don't go inactive. They don't go dormant. They tend to continue returning to the software. And if we achieved an account or, or an instance with more than 50% of the users in that instance were high value, then effectively they never churned. Like um, the instance remained, remained active. They continued paying. They're effectively convinced and happy in continuing. Got it. So say I'm a startup and I'm bought into everything you're saying and the importance of activation metrics and the way they evolve over time. But where do I start? What advice do you have for someone who's just starting to try to define what their activation metrics should be? Ah, uh, sure. As I mentioned earlier, I think the first place to start is is the zero to one problem. It's pretty much just survival, and in particular, you know, you have to be open and honest with yourself and look at the very early periods of customer first interacting with your software and look at your metrics and your data, and actually understand: do they survive the very first interactions? Do they survive from 
hour one to hour two or minute one to minute two or, or day one to day two. Y- you learn a huge amount simply from, from that and you'll often be surprised by the drop-off rates or the percentage of people that don't make it from one period to another. And so you can use that kind of as a, as a key metric for almost all different types of software. You know, obviously that's not just it. Like you can't just have just a survival metric. You're also going to need other things that you can move because you can't move a survival metric by itself. You have to change other elements of the behavior or get users to achieve more of the following features or engage more deeply with other things that your software can do and that causes them to be retained and to survive so we think about it as kind of input and output metrics and so the output of survival from day one to day two or month one to month two or month one to month five is fundamentally a function of value that the user is receiving from your software and so your input metrics are going to be something that measures value or that is closer to measuring value and your output metrics are going to be things like engagement or survival so if i put this in an actual example maybe spotify is a good example you know engagement in spotify is obviously going to be something around time spent listening to music which is you know a useful metric to measure how would i influence that if i were going to you know have a growth team at spotify then i'm going to need something more actionable so i'm going to be looking for input metrics And the input metrics to something like time spent listening to music might be time spent per session. And okay, if I wanted to move the metric time spent per session, well, I might want to start looking at discovery features. How do I help people discover new music that they want to listen to? Or I might look at social sharing features. Do people use the features to share with their friends, share new music with their friends that would cause them to listen longer in sessions that would also eventually lead to them spending more time listening to music. So the input metrics are the ones you can directly affect or at least more directly affect and they have a strong correlation to the output metric. Like You can't guarantee that moving the input metric will move the output metric but you have a logical reason to believe that. If I give you uh, an example of that in the context of Jira, for example, the Atlassian product, then we could show that in order to activate in Jira, you obviously had to do certain things. Like there was a very strong correlation, like you had to create a project. You had to create an issue in that project, right? That's kind of, it's a useful insight, but it doesn't really help in any way because of course you have to do those things because if you don't do those things, the software doesn't do anything. It's kind of useless. So the correlation is very strong. It's not a very helpful correlation. But another correlation we discovered was that if you had created three issues in your JIRA in the first week and you'd invited someone else into the JIRA in the first week, then that drastically increased your chances of surviving into the second week. So that's a much more actionable metric that we could use. Now, I would caution when you're searching for these types of correlations, they're very valuable, but they're not slam dunks, they're not smoking guns. So the fact that if you create three issues in Jira and you invite another person means uh, you know, you're know you drastically more likely to survive to the second week and to eventually convert. doesn't mean that if I force people to create three issues in Jira on the first day that that will lead to improvements in conversion. It's People are doing it because they want to. These metrics are valuable, but you need to think about how authentically to drive people to successfully do them because they already wanted to and because you're already enabling them to do something that is valuable to them rather than trying to force them in order to move a metric that inauthentically. Right. Which brings up a great point. So these metrics can be influenced by the 
onboarding process, but you obviously don't want to be forcing users to take certain actions. You want to be helping them along the natural flow that they want to take. So can you share what the onboarding flow looked like while you were working on Jira and how it evolved? Oh, yeah. I mean, when we first started, uh, there pretty much wasn't any. There was just a little um, kind of a widget on the on the main dashboard that kind of gave you some very basic advice about how to start with Jira. So over the years, we tried hundreds, hundreds of onboarding flows in Jira and Confluence and the other major major Atlassian products. And we were just constantly trying to adapt them and understand what it was that users were trying to achieve and how to enable them to do that. And a couple of interesting learnings or interesting examples of that would be quite a few years ago now, we tried one experiment that was actually quite successful and it was called the 12-step program. And effectively, uh, when you arrived in Jira, it basically had this like 12-step wizard, you could consider it, that explained the key concepts of Jira. And we set it up so that you couldn't skip it. You had to read or click through all 12 steps. Now, we could show that this substantially increased activation and overall it improved conversion of Jira. So this is like kind of a win. And I guess the, the hypothesis for why it works is that Jira is a complex piece of software. If you don't understand the basics, your chances of success are very low. And so basically getting you to do this onboarding flow and to learn these concepts was important. Now, logically, that's actually not something you want to be doing. You don't really want to be forcing your users to go through this 12-step knowledge gaining exercise before you've even shown them any value. So like I said, we were always trying to best ourselves. And you know, it, very shortly after that one went into production, we found a better one. And the better one was actually quite simple. We called it Choose Your Own Adventure, but that's kind of, a, I guess, an over-exaggerated title. Effectively, it was literally just a takeover screen that when you first came into the software, and effectively, it was like three options. The third option was, you know, I'm an expert, just get out of my way. The first option was help me create a project and begin. The second one was let me browse the projects that already exist. And it's funny because that's just like a trivial screen, you know, like the amount of code is probably, I don't know, 30 lines of code or something like that. I mean, it's just a very small, trivial screen, but it worked really well because effectively what we had thought about was like, well, what are the three key things that this new person could want to do? And it turns out that guiding them past the first step of having first logged in to those things had a substantial improvement in their activation. That's great. So my takeaway from that is continually testing what's going to work and never being satisfied, always testing how can you improve it because the next iteration could look quite different. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I always thought about it as champion challenger. I don't know if you've heard that framework before. Mm-hmm. And and yeah, yep. and so with the champion challenger framework, it was never about winning. There was never an answer. It was always about, could we do better? Mm-hmm, for sure. So switching gears a little bit. So you wrote a piece earlier this year with Brian Balfour and Casey Winter, and it was called Why Retention is a Silent Killer. And you hit on how retention and activation are all too often just aren't prioritized by many startups. So why do you think so many tech companies fall into this trap? Yeah, that's a tough one. My thinking on this has evolved over the years. One of the challenges with retention and engagement is that it's fundamentally a conundrum. The reason people are not retained is a combination of a million different paper cuts. And that makes it really hard, right? You're kind of looking for where people get lost and fail rather than looking for ways to give them big features that will solve some of their deep pains. It's just way less certain and it's just this 
complex journey of discovery and learning and constant experimentation. And so when you have these other pressures to deliver features that, that will solve pain that you believe will therefore lead to revenue, and when you also have these pressures to go and get new users, it's easy to see how this type of very kind of constant, not painful, but certainly intricate work of constantly learning and learning and learning. It doesn't get the time that other things do inside startups. I mean, there are so many examples of companies that, you know, have failed because they have failed to retain their users. So one example might be Branch Out. I don't know if you're familiar with those guys. Like at one point they reached a 33 million users. They, they were a platform kind of like a LinkedIn, but, but on Facebook. There are other examples like Living Social and, and examples like that where they've raised a lot of money, they've successfully found an acquisition channel where they can grow, but they're losing more users out the back than they are bringing in. And it gets harder and harder to bring in new people. You know, the, the earlier people are always the easiest to acquire. And so you're acquiring all these users, but but you're not, you're not actually successfully uh, converting those users into value. And so it can really be a killer of startups. For sure. So one way to combat that sort of common misstep that a lot of companies take is to have a team that's dedicated to retention and activation metrics. I know in talking with leaders at a lot of different fast-growing SaaS businesses that there is a bit of debate on whether it makes sense to have a dedicated team reporting out on those metrics versus spreading that across multiple teams. So, I mean, what's your take? That's a tough one. And it kind of, it references a little bit to what we were talking about earlier. It's, I mean, if you, if you have a kind of R and D group or, or a product group that is already very data driven and they're already very, you know, hypothesis and experimentation driven. So they spend a lot of time looking at the data, understanding where people might be failing or features aren't connecting to users and they already kind of bring an experimental mindset to trying to maximize that value creation, then you could definitely cycle in some of this growth and engagement and retention work into those teams. I guess my observation would be though that in general, when you have teams that are gold on solving tough challenges, like building important new pieces of the product, it's hard to do both big product feature-driven work while also doing small hypothesis, incrementally driven experimentation and exploration. And so I think that it, most companies are probably better off carving out a small growth team sooner rather than later because they'll get all these benefits from that team as they discover places where the benefit of the product is not being maximized. And you don't need a large team in order to get a lot of value here. Typically at the start, there's a lot of low-hanging fruit. And so you know, you'll definitely get your ROI. So what are some companies that you look up to today or you think are doing a good job in terms of activating their users? I think two of my favorites right now, and I would definitely list them together, would actually be Robinhood and Coinbase. I don't know if you've played with either of those products, but they're pretty much surgical. Because when you consider the difficulty of, for example, activating Robinhood, which is basically going to be your first trade, or Coinbase, which is also going to be something similar, but a trade in cryptocurrency, then it's actually really hard to do that. Like, There's a lot of things that have to be aligned before that first trade can happen. You've got funding, you've got know your customer, you've got all these other things. And so they've made these delightful surgical 
precise experiences that encourage you and cajole you and make as simple as possible what is really a painful thing. And then after that, they've got these variety of notifications and engagement hooks that are constantly bringing you back or attempting to bring you back so that after your first trade, you still develop the habit that will lead to true activation and engagement, really beautiful experiences they've built on. Great. I'll have to check those out. So you shared a lot with us already. My last question for you is, what is your number one piece of advice you'd give to a startup who's looking to really double down and focus on user activation? Sure. I'd say that really the first step is to model out your early stage retention and think about it at levels of granularity that kind of seem minute. So basically, you should model out your early stage engagement and retention in terms of days or even minutes. Like look at retention from minute one to minute two and examine every single like click that users are making or everything they're typing in the very first stages of engaging with your software. Every single one of those steps is probably a massive source of friction in ways that would really surprise you. You can use things like user story or user research or other ways of, of observing it, but it will probably surprise you how confused and uncertain and unsure your users are when they're first engaging and how quickly they'll give up because they have no reason to believe that you can do what you say you can do. So what that means is that because you're almost certainly having this massive drop-off very early on, and it's happening because of these little paper cuts that you didn't realize, if you do this, you're almost certain to find a massive ROI. This is kind of, I hesitate to say it, but this is kind of free money, because there's not a lot of work involved in you know running five or 10 experiments a month in activation. There's not a lot of work involved in doing that, but all those users are people that you've spent like a huge amount of money acquiring, right? The, the cost of all the content marketing, advertising, paid acquisition, other things you've done to acquire these users, you need to do everything you possibly can to connect them to that value and then get them to go deeper into your software to truly understand the value of what it is you're delivering. And the ROI is pretty clear because you'll get revenue as you have all these happy users and your happy users will refer other happy users as well. So you'll also get benefits to acquisition as well. It's a really great point. As you think about improving activation, it also helps fuel your future acquisition. Yeah, the best source of acquisition all day, every day for me is word of mouth because it's free. It's free. And, yes. and who doesn't go and check out a product if, if your friend turns to you and says, hey, you know, I really love this product X, you should check it out. Like that's a pretty high compliment and it really does lead to very authentic growth. Agree. Well, Sean, thank you so much for sharing your perspectives. Really enjoyed thank you, it. Actually, it's really been great. Thanks for tuning in. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts. And give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. You can subscribe to our newsletter that is sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators and founders every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Or you can follow us on Twitter at OpenView Venture. Until next time.